Today's scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with, tranquil, with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom I am toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thanks, Ben. You know, we've been reminded in this uh, series in Ecclesiastes about the importance of living life in reverse. And this and living life, our present life, in light of our eventual death, which isn't meant to be a morbid outlook, but is meant to bring more meaning to our lives now. Last week, we looked at the, how little control we have over the passing of time and its seasons in chapter 3. And today, we turn to the futility of the rat race of life that is expressed here in chapter 4. And we get a hint of the themes that Kohelet speaks of in his use of the word better. In verse 3, better to have been born than to have, uh, to have never been born than to have lived and died. Better to have one handful with quiet than two handfuls with toil. Or to be empty-handed like a fool. Better to have a friend than to be alone. In verse 9. Better to be poor but wise youth but, than to be an old but foolish king. In verse 13. These phrases invite us to consider what are we trying to make better in our lives as we proceed through it. Now I want to explore this question of people call upward mobility by framing it around two phrases. What do your hands say? And what do your relationships say? What do your hands say? And what do your relationships say? You know, in pre-COVID times, before hugs and handshakes were possible, you know, even now it's kind of awkward when we do passing the peace, right? Are you a hugger? Are you a handshaker? Are you an elbow bumper? But in pre-COVID times, 
hugs and handshakes were, uh, were not life-threatening activities. Handshakes were a great way to get an impression of a person, especially when you're meeting them for the very first time. You know, news media made a big deal about the former president's handshakes. Some of them were too long. They, I think there's one that he, ha uh, that he had with President Macron, uh, and it was like 45 seconds long. And he dragged him around as he... Others seemed to imply a sense of dominance and strength. When I still live in Canada, uh, Canadians actually took great pride in a, one particular interaction between Trump and Trudeau in 2017. And while it may have escaped some of your attention here in America, Canadians made a big deal of how Trudeau resisted the Trump's jerk-and-pull handshake. Take a look at these tweets where they said, you know, Canadians took great pride. Trudeau resisted it, resisting Trump's weird handshake is the biggest display of dominance in the history of Canada. <laughs> great Canadian victories. One, the War of 1812. We stormed the White House. Two, the gold medal hockey match and the 2010 Olympics. Three, the Trump-Trudeau handshake in 2017. What do we do? What we do with our hands tells a lot about the kind of person we are. It's the same in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Take a look at verses 5 through 6. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better is one handful with tranquility or quietness than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. In these verses, Kohelet, the writer of of most of Ecclesiastes, identifies how different people approach work by noting what we do with our hands. In verse 5, the fool folds his hands and so ruins themselves. The fool here might be a, a work dropout who believes himself to be wise in his own eyes. Maybe he says, I'm smart enough to know the deal here. I see what all these type A people are doing. It's just all like chest thumping. But I'm not playing that game. I'm too smart for that. But the fool's response is an equal and opposite measure to those he critiques. It comes from a sense of complacency and it leads to self-destruction. A fool's idleness damages not only what he has, his opportunities and resources, but who he is. It erodes the sense of self-control and a sense of reality. It takes away this capacity to think of others and to be generous. And over this past year, I've learned about this term called anti-work. I don't know if you've come across it yet. I discovered that the anti-work movement is rooted in this, is, was, has been rooted in anarchist, anti-capitalist philosophy. But anti-work has grown into this wider movement, as I understand it, to advocate for the rights of workers. At its core, anti-work sentiment questions the role of work in human life. It's particularly critical of an economic system that seems to embrace unjust wages and deprive workers of the full value of what they contribute. And there is wisdom in critiquing how our employment structures are set up. But this critique can also be an ex immature expression of the fool that Kohelet names. You may think that folding your hands away because you think you know better, 
But in the end, you're the one who loses. Ecclesiastes isn't the only place that we find this foolish response to work. Proverbs is full of these axioms as well. One of them can be found in Proverbs 12, verse 24, where it says, Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. You know, the hard, in some ways, the fool here, named by Kohelet, may think that they are bucking the system of forced labor. But laziness, too, will end in forced labor, perhaps of a different sort. Now, the hardworking and prudent people amongst us here will might, might immediately point out and say, Aha, see? Even the Bible says diligence and hard work will pay off. You want freedom? Take the opportunities that you have. Make the most of them. Put your hands to the grindstone and make a future for yourself. But Kahelet has something to say to the determined worker too. A determined worker says, well, God gave me two hands to work with. Other people don't have the abilities and the skills and opportunities that have been given to me. So I'm going to make the most of them and get ahead. Everything that's placed in my hands, my money, my time, my resources, my opportunities, I'm going to hold on to them and use them to maximize what I, where I get to in life. Because that would be foolish to waste those things that are placed in my hands. And perhaps even would be considered foolish and unfaithful stewardship of what God has given to me. So, far be it for me to reject a promotion offered to me. Far be it to jump from one employer to another because that's the best way to make more money. Far be it for me to grow my business and place more demands on my time, or to take my company public. Why wouldn't I do those things? Now, where the fool folds up his hands when it comes to work, the driven person puts two hands to work. And to both the fool and the determined one, Kohelet says, this is all chasing after wind. It's vanity. Both approaches can be foolish. Now, just to be clear, questioning the fairness of your work situation or moving to a new position or taking a promotion or growing your business, those are not foolish actions in themselves. Take a look at verses 4 and 7 and 8. They're up on the screen. They're foolish not just because of what they do with their hands, but why they do what they do with their hands. In these verses, Kahelet names the actions of both the lazy fool and the determined fool. And they're both rooted in either pleasure-seeking or envy, comparison, competition. Where the lazy fool loses himself to his laziness, the determined fool, in some ways, loses himself to the endless pursuit of riches. Endless pursuit of recognition and success. All of their work, or lack of it, is motivated by envy, competition, or pure pleasure-seeking. And none of these things, your treasures or your pleasures, will satisfy us at the end of our life. We can't take our pleasures and our treasures with us. The pursuit of pleasure or success is vanity. So what does Kahelet recommend? 
don't fold your hands up like a fool. Don't grip on to everything that's in your two hands. Instead, he says, better is one hand with tranquility. Better is a handful with quiet. Not no hands, not two hands, but one handful, one hand. One hand means you don't have to grip on to everything that passes through your hands. One hand means you don't have to make something out of everything. You can let some things go. The true wisdom is knowing what to let go of and what to hang on to. One hand means seeing your life in light of your entire being and what happens at the end of it. What's good for your entire personhood. Rather than simply what's working, what's in your hands that you're working on. One hand means you're thinking about the health of the rest of your body, your mind, your soul, your relationships, and your spirit. Not just your physical strength and the material possessions that you hold on to. One hand means you're thinking of your age and place in life and your body and your capacity and the limitations. These limitations inform what you take on in your hand. One hand means considering the relationships that you're in and how the work of your hands affects those relationships. A 16th century preacher, Jeremiah Burroughs, says this, but the Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions. Jesus' follower can approach our desires and what we have differently. Grabbing life with two hands looks at what people have in their lives, what other people have in their hands, and says, I I can do that. I can fit that in my two hands. Oh, this person has that. I I can do that. Why not go for it? I have the health. I have the strength. I have the time. I have the resources. But one hand with quietness says, this is what's in my hands right now. How do I find joy in what God has given to me? Approaching life with one hand is recognizing what to hold on to and what to let go of wise, loosely. But does a handful of quiet, what does handful of quiet or a handful of tranquility mean? Verse 6, better is a handful with tranquility. Kahelet offers a different, uh, an alternative in, in this verse, saying, Quietness and tranquility is better than toil and chasing after the wind. A handful of quiet means having more modest demands and valuing a more lasting sense of peace than what we hold in our hands. It's an attitude that's far from the fool's indolence and as it is from the driven one's frenetic pursuit to get to the top. The phrase captures the well-being of one who knows their place in the world. Those who are comfortable in their own skin. Particularly in relationship with the living God of the universe. David Gibson writes in his book on Ecclesiastes saying this. Live the life you have now instead of longing for the life that you think you will have. But which you cannot actually control at all. Live the life you have now. Live the life that you have in the one hand rather than thinking about all the stuff you can fit in your hands. We are merely creatures 
not the creator. Only God is. And the time and the place and the bodies that God has given to us, these are gifts from God that we do not deserve. They are on loan to us for the time that we are here in this life. Your life is on loan to you. So embrace it for what it is rather than what you want it to be. What we'd like it to be is the great temptation offered by the serpent to Adam and Eve. See, one hand with quietness harkens back to the Garden of Eden. One hand with quietness back then is back in the garden. Sorry, I just lost my place here. In the Garden of Eden, meaningful work was rewarded with the pleasure of freely eating from any tree in the garden, except one. In the garden, it's not the freedom from constraint that's good, but a freedom with a particular constraint that's good. And this idea pops up again when Israel enters the promised land. In Canaan, Israel is given the promise of another land, another garden flowing with milk and honey, but with the work to do as God's people who are gifted with God's law. When Jesus shows up on this scene, the focus of God's work, of the work of God's people shifts from a geographical location, the ancient Near East, to, and material possessions to the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says to a rich man, saying, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And in Matthew chapter 6, he says, But the kingdom of God is... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. With these in mind, we find that one handful with quietness is not related to your productivity. It's not an output. It's a state of heart. It's the fruit of contentment. And this kind of quietness isn't just an inner zen, and disconnected from reality. It's a quietness rooted in the most significant reality. It's being upwardly mobile in our lives to come while being downwardly mobile in this life now. It's being upwardly mobile in what's most lasting and important. It's the ability to look at our lives in, now in light of God's kingdom. It's living life in reverse. Between now and the day that you die, what do your hands say about you? What do you do with them? What do you keep in them? Do your hands speak of the fool's laziness or the determined one's vain pursuit of upward mobility in this life? Or do they speak of up, true upward mobility in eternity? And this touches briefly on the other question raised in this chapter. What do our relationships say about what's most important to us? 
New York Times columnist David Brooks talks about eulogy virtues and resume virtues. Resume virtues are about wanting recognition for what we do with our hands. Eulogy virtues are what other people recognize about your life and relationships. He says this, Resume virtues are the skills that you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral at the end. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, or faithful. Were you capable of deep love? That's what Kehelet is pointing out in the verses 9 through 12. There is a deep loneliness of pursuing wealth and recognition when you don't have family or friends to call your own. Our education and our career paths prize and reward what we do with our hands, but they rarely recognize the quality of our relationships. In fact, some professions reward you for burning through your relationships on the path to success. You know, though your wealth may be able to buy companionship, maybe your wealth may be able to buy sexual experiences to fulfill your desire for intimacy, it will never satisfy. Your wealth cannot buy eulogy virtues. Maybe your wealth can buy a name on a building, but it will never buy eulogy virtues. You might have all the wealth in the world, but who is going to help you and comfort you? In fact, who is going to notice that you need help. In fact, who will notice that you have noticed them, particularly in their need? Because that's what eulogy virtues speak of. And though these verses are most often quoted at weddings, you know, two become one, threefold, three-quarters strand will not be broken, they are not limited to marriage relationships. The mutual support and warmth conveyed are to be aspired in all relationships. What do our hands say? What do our relationships say? What do they say about what we value and what we find most important? And if we take a step back, do, these th do the things that we put our energy towards in this life build up our kingdom that will fail or build up God's kingdom? Maybe another helpful way to think about it is who do you think is going to be at your funeral and what will they say about you? What do you hope them to say about you? Now, last Sunday, the Washington Post ran a story about Leon Cooperman, a 78-year-old billionaire who seems to have made it and achieved the American dream. Came from a poor immigrant family. He's the first in his family to go to college. He took out a student loan to go, but he made his money in finance and hedge funds. And he worked 80-hour weeks taking only one holiday a week, uh, a year, on the Friday before Thanksgiving. By 1978, that's 45 years ago, 44 years ago, he was already making more than his family could ever spend. Think of that, 40, the past 44 years. The story opens with him calling his trading office for an update at 17 minutes after opening. He's made $6 million in that time. By the end of the day, he spent $3 million, gave away $5 million to charity. He was up $18 million at one point in the midday, and by the end of the day, he was down $6 million. At one point, he says this. Does it make sense? 
watching the numbers change on his screen, to sit inside all day in front of a machine making money I don't need so I can give it to someone I don't know. Now, if, as you read the story, Cooperman is refreshingly down to earth about his wealth. He rides a bike to get around. His family owns, a, he and his wife own a Hyundai. He believes that billionaires should be taxed more. He's going to give away 90% of his wealth upon his death because he knows that he can't take it with him. His brother recently passed away in December and he used to walk daily with his brother. And he compares himself to his brother since, you know, thinking a lot about death since his brother passed away. His brother didn't go to college and he retired as soon as he could and just spent his time playing volleyball and enjoying time with his friends. Leon has billions to his name. There's a hospital with his name on it. His brother died a modest, modestly, you know, uh, comfortable, but, and had, but he had a cell phone full of close friends that cared about him. With all that he has accomplished, Leon is asking himself the same questions that Kahelet asks us. You don't have to be a billionaire to answer them. What do our hands say about what's important to us? What do our relationships say about what's important to us? Now, without, recognize, without recognizing another reality at work, an eternal reality informed by an eternal and living God, all of what we do in this life really is meaningless. Thankfully, Jesus shows us that what we do with our hands, what we do with our relationships, can have meaning. Jesus shows us what he does with his hands. Though his hands wield the greatest power in the universe, he chooses to do something else with his hands. He takes that power and uses his hands to serve others. He uses his hands to heal. And though his hands, uh, and he takes his hands to, to welcome the overlooked and the forgotten. And though his hands are toughened from years of forming and nailing wood as a carpenter, we find that it's when his hands are made vulnerable and nailed to the wood of the cross that we see what is truly meaningful. And for Jesus, his own downward mobility was the way of upward mobility for all of humanity to be restored in relationship with the living God of the universe. You know, those who trust in Jesus and those who follow in his ways find themselves in the most upwardly mobile life. And though it may appear downwardly mobile in this life, so will you trust Jesus and follow in his ways. May we all discover this joy and this quietness that comes from walking in the ways of downward mobility with Jesus for true upward mobility for all. Amen.